Well, <clears throat> so did that large boom scare you guys earlier during the worship and you all jumped? Okay, I did too. I did too because I accidentally bumped into one of those cabinets in the huge lid, like, shut, and almost cut my leg off, but, because that thing is so heavy, but it was so loud, and I was just like, I was picturing all of you guys out here just, did everybody jump? I am sorry, that was my fault. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes, my lack of sleep. And I was like, Lord, in the middle of worship, why why do I do things like this? I'm trying we're trying to be undistracted and I knock that over. That's just great. So, anyways, um things like that happen every now and then. So here we are, the most wonderful time of the year, right? Can we sing that? No, no, you bunch of Grinches. Oh, my gosh. This is the best time. I love this music. I love Christmas music. It's this 50s, 40s, 50. Justy, no, sorry. What Christmas music do you like? None. Oh, my gosh. Put the green light on her right now, the Grinch green color. So... Anyways, but being down here in Florida, it doesn't quite feel the same as it does up north. But anyways, so um, so John last week shared some important thoughts on this pre-temporal choice for God to become incarnate, okay? And that is this theological term that um, really alludes to, like, prior to his existence, this decision that God makes to enter humanity and as a human being to save the human race. And that is so unique to Christianity. There are no other world religions that teach anything like that. It is very different. And so when we hear at times, well, Christianity, you know, the world religions, they're all basically the same. Absolutely not. Totally different, especially when it comes to this. And so here we have God, who is infinite and eternal, stepping into time and space as we experience it. Okay, so walking the same earth, breathing the same air, building relationships with other humans which is really, really strange when you think about that. Building relationships, personal relationships with the humans that he created. It's really different. Knowing that I'm building a relationship with someone, they have no idea that I've assembled their DNA before the beginning of time. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling if you really spend some time thinking about that. So, John kind of described how God uses this unusual path of humiliation 
instead of adulation. And this is kind of the theme of this series, this glorious humiliation and how those things work together and how that humiliation actually is God's glory being displayed. And so Jesus, you know, arrival didn't come with fireworks and fanfare, but it was in humility. And it's this makeshift hotel room that's really more of a barn or stable. Um, No palace, no parade. And for most that were in the city at that time, which had swelled to probably about three times the size of the normal population, um, most, for really most intents and purposes, had gone unnoticed that he is even there. I mean, there's just a, a lot going on, and that's just another family that's there. Okay, so there's a lot that we can learn about how God chooses to operate just really reading and thinking about this story. So I want to focus a little bit on the real-life drama that was unfolding right before humanity and how there were a select few that even had an inkling as to what was going on, that there was something really unique that was happening, although their, their understanding was somewhat limited There was something about the attentiveness of certain hearers and observers. And so when I think of Jesus' words, like often when he taught, um, there were certain phrases that he, he would use. And if he was speaking to a big crowd or a group of people, he would finish his teachings with a phrase where he'd say, let he who has ears hear. And he says that numerous times. And so there's something there about being attentive and listening. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. And so one thing that's clear from scripture is that God is a communicator. He speaks. He speaks through his word, through his people, and through his spirit, and we need to quiet ourselves to listen well. And that's difficult. If, though, we engage with God, we can rest assured that he will not be silent. And as I mentioned, there were some who had searched the scriptures, were observing the times, and they were waiting for someone to enter the scene to redeem and save. And so why is it that some were completely oblivious to that and others seemed really like cued in to what was happening or about to happen? So there's this grand drama that begins unfolding, and we see it at the beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve, and then further on, and those who had ears to hear are starting to understand the drama. So we're going to move ahead, and we're going to pull out um, three or four sections from Scripture, 
And we're going to fast forward, like, from the beginning of the story, like in Genesis, all the way to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. And there's this promise at the end of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. And it says in verses 4, or chapter 4, verse 6, it says, He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, talking about the people of God, that there will be this change of heart, that God is going to do something internally in us. And then we have this silent period. And so theologians will call this um, kind of this time of waiting. There was about 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak scripturally, sort of like an intermission in the story, where we see the people of God who have had tons of instruction and interaction with God for a long time, now kind of on their own, and not really honoring God during that time. So, there's as 400 years of silence. Then, The intermission is over, and part two starts. And so for me, I don't know how many times I've been, if you guys ever been, you know, um, at a movie, and you know those movies that start where there's no explanation, and there's all these pieces that you're like, oh, I know this is important, but I don't know how this fits yet. And it feels like sometimes, like for me, it can be two hours <laughs> where I'm like, what is going on? You know, and then afterwards I'm like, oh, so that's why that happened. Okay. But there's this period where there's a number of things that are pieced together that are happening. You know they're important, but you're not really sure of the entire story and the context. And those things seem unrelated, but you know that there is a purpose They're there for a reason, and they are related. And that's what we start to see in Scripture, is that we have people that are experiencing things in different contexts, and we have Scripture outline kind of these different stories and things coming together, and then how do those intermingle and create the bigger story? So, early on here, when Jesus arrives, we have some Jews that have been exiled that were familiar with the Old Testament and believe Scripture and are, and are kind of in tune with the prophecies that alert them that there's this new king or this anointed one that's going to save us. Um, so, that, so that's one kind of group of people. Um, there's a group of these Babylonian astronomers. And so Scripture at times, you know, we hear the story of the, the Magi. Um, actually a group of, a pretty large group. Most scholars would say maybe 50 or so Babylonian um, astronomers. And so that was a very common thing at the time and of great interest to them, and so things started to happen in the heavens that were unusual. 
And so there is this convergence, um, Jupiter, Venus, um, some type of comet type thing. It's like this triple conjunction that happens. And they had tied certain constellations to whether it was Jews or royalty or whatever. All of them converge at this time. And as a result, they piece together that something is happening. It's being communicated to us through creation. And there is this visible star type thing that's happening. So who was alive here in 1986? All right. There was a few of us. Right on. Do you guys remember the comet star type thing that was visible during the day? So, yeah, it was really like a strange thing. And so I, I remember just going to class in college and thinking, wow, it's crazy that it's lit up and you can see it during the day. And it lasted, it was what, like three and a half weeks or so. And yeah, and then slowly kind of faded away. And so astronomers are saying that that type of thing occurred. And so when it says they follow the star night and day, at first it seemed kind of mythical and hokey to me. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this type of thing happens. And so... <clears throat> Then also there's this retrograde motion where it moves to one direction and then moves back the other. All that to say that this is a very unusual coincidence right at this time. And there's a message that they receive from that. And it's royalty is going to be born to the Jews. Is what this kind of those that knew scripture and the astronomers put together. And so they literally pick up as a group, and like I said, scholars would say a pretty large group, 50, 75 or so, and they make this trek to find this royalty. So kind of this nomadic traipse across to find this, try to, to find this new king like nomads. Really interesting takes about two years, year and a half or so, to make that trip. And that in itself is remarkable. But we're talking about this grand story, and then this small, I mean, it really is relatively small, 70, 50 to 75 people, this small obscure group that were somehow being clued in in an unusual way to what God is up to. And that maybe there is this bigger story, or as theologians like to call it, the meta-narrative. The big story. So I'm going to pick this up in Matthew 2. And if you have your Bibles, um, we've got some over there. Uh, and so feel free to grab one if you don't have one. If you don't own a Bible, those are our gifts to you. So take one now. And, uh, and take it home, okay? So Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
So this is after their year and a half trip. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, Herod is not a religious guy, but all of a sudden he hears this, really he hears competition. He's threatened in some way. And so this is what he hears from the religious people. He gets those scholars and chief priests together like, hey, what does your book say about some kind of ruler or royalty or something? I'm hearing about this. Tell me what's going on. And so this is what they tell him. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A ruler. So Herod is concerned. He's power hungry. Not, not a high character person by any means. Then he endeavors to find out, well, what time did this um, star, whatever you guys are talking about, what time did this appear? It says a little bit further. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So he questions them. Tell me more about this. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Okay, that's politics right there. It's a total lie. He's not interested in worshiping him. He's interested in in extinguishing him, in removing the threat, whatever it is. He might even think, this is a bunch of bunk. I don't know, but I'm not going to let this happen, whatever is going on here. Or he's heard, okay, this is really unusual. There's this convergence. These guys are swearing that something is happening here. I'm concerned. It says that he was disturbed. So he's concerned about his, his rule. After, verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now that's this retrograde, retrograde motion where it goes forward and backward that astronomers talk about. When they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They stopped at Bath and Body Works on the way. Great stuff. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So at this point now, we have a number of actors in this grand play that are starting to become aware that they are in the middle of something much bigger than they are. It's the beginning of human redemption, and it's messy. It is anything but a silent night in many respects. So back to Matthew 2, verse 13 through 18. 
When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Interesting that God speaks to them through Scripture with the Old Testament, and in this case, in dreams also. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So the intrigue and the drama is happening. The Messiah is potentially here, and he is trying to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He finds out those astronomers, they outwitted me. They knew what I was up to. So, right away, he takes action. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he knows, listen, they left a year and a half ago. If I kill every male two years and under, I might be able to extinguish and and kill this child. Um, So, yes, we had this arrival where there was celebration you know the i bring you great tidings you know great joy that a savior is born to you um there's great celebration there and there's also great mourning there's mourning as these innocents now are being killed in hopes that one of them might be the Messiah. So throughout all this, the fulfillment of Scripture is happening while you have these free-willed humans in the story responding to this new king. So it's gone from a more gentle kind of celebratory scene to now it's this thriller with intrigue and power and evil and murder. All due to the arrival of one male child. So the prophecies that were pointed to not only reveal God's plan within human history, it also reveals an adversary in a spiritual battle to remove him. Herod's plan to kill the Messiah. Matthew 2, 19 through 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he knows the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So then what was fulfilled was said... 
because it says here, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, free will of humans and this grand story unfolding at the same time. In Scripture, foretelling these things written hundreds of years before. And now the Scripture is giving Jesus address and location, and that's being defined more and more narrowly as these things are being revealed. So those that had ears to hear are hearing this. Those who had eyes to see are starting to observe these things coming together. So when we think about the address, you've got a Messiah who's born in Bethlehem in Judea, who comes from Egypt and then grows up in Nazareth. Knowing that this anointed one would save the world from their sins, it's fascinating that of any location on the planet that Jesus would be born in this small town of Bethlehem. Fascinating. Of all places on the planet, that's that, that that is where Jesus would be born. Because Bethlehem was where they raised the lambs that were breeded to be spotless and perfect for the temple sacrifices. The goal was spotless male lambs. So there was this meaning, this double meaning that was going on. So when John the Baptist said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the people, it totally makes sense that this small town of Bethlehem would be the place where he would would be born. And those that would put Scripture together with the events that were happening would start to realize something is up. Now, when we look at these prophecies, those being fulfilled just on their own, like the chances of those happening are between slim and none. On top of that, Jesus didn't have control over them. That was one of the things that I thought when I was considering atheism was that these prophecies are no big deal. All Jesus did, he was aware of the Old Testament, he just acted those things out. Well, sorry, there's a ton of those things that were not under his control. That was problematic for me as someone that was considering atheism. It was troubling. Because how in the world do all these working parts come together with different agendas, competing goals, individuals that are actors in these stories that don't know each other. Some are religious, some are non-religious, some are government officials and leaders, common people, prostitutes, tax collectors. All of them intertwine to unfold and tell the story of God. The reason that that is so incredible is that the greatest author of all time who wrote 
the drama is God. And he had us in mind. I want to finish with Luke 2, turning back to the scripture here. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. There it is, this heart thing again. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. I personally have always wanted to meet Simeon. In a world that back then was just as chaotic and divided and political and as racist as today, somehow this man had managed to cut through all the noise, listen to the Spirit, be moved by the Spirit, Scripture says he was righteous and devout, and God honors him with a promise that, quite honestly, is one of the most incredible gifts ever in human history. Imagine that. Simeon, I love you. You're a great man, and you have been waiting for the Messiah. You have been trusting my word. And between you and me, I am going to let you hold the Messiah in your arms. Can you imagine that? The hope of the world, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator Jesus in his arms. That is a personal, attentive, engaged father that we have. That is that closely tied to an individual like Simeon and honors that. And then he reserves that space and time for Simeon. And I love how Simeon responds afterwards. It's basically, I can die a happy man now. Take me, Lord. Nothing could compare to that day. Here's what we can learn from Simeon. He's just a normal guy like average Joe, like us. We desire to be people 
like Simeon, who listened to God in the midst of chaos, who pursue godly character, and when the world is lost and confused and unhappy, Simeon had the joy of the Lord because he was in God's presence and he knew it. This is the gospel. Good tidings of great joy, salvation has come to the world. The thing that's, gosh, I mean, there is so much here. But when we look at this drama, it is not over. It's not over. It is still going on. It was directed with us in mind. And now we are actors in it. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. There are those in this room that are disciples of him now. We are actors in this. That is an incredible thing. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are a God who is so engaged and in tune with us that just one single solitary life like Simeon that you would say, for you, I'm going to let you see the Messiah. I'm going to let you hold the Messiah. What a crazy thing. And God, we are so thankful <clears throat> that there is this grand plan that at times seems so confusing. There's all these working and moving pieces with different actors, and yet what you've communicated very clearly is you are sovereign and you are in control of all of it. That you had a plan from the beginning of time before creation your plan was to redeem all of us, for you to come and lay down your life and pay the death penalty for each one of us that we owe, that we couldn't pay ourselves. God, what an incredible drama. There was an adversary who tried to stop it, couldn't, and has now lost. So God, you are powerful you are the author. Help us to see where we fit into this right now. God, thank you that you had us in mind for all eternity. In Jesus' name.